Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Diagnosis validates it because you can't measure pain. It's only like there have been studies that say like the pain of endometriosis is equivalent to like having a heart attack, which wow. is next level pain. Yeah. Like none of us, well, many of us haven't experienced that, but yeah. we see it. So yeah. um, when you're able to put a name to something, it definitely helps. When you're just telling people that you, you your pains are like uh, a knife scraping across your kind of uterus ovaries wow. or there's stabbing pains. um People feel bad for you, but they don't get it. When you, you arm them with the, this diagnosis and they can look it up and they see, oh, damn, this is quite serious. Yeah. I think then that helps. Hello and welcome to Why Aren't You a Doctor Yet? I'm Hannah Ayub, your very favourite host of this podcast. Now, you've probably been missing us and we've been missing you too and each other to be honest because the UK is currently in lockdown. So you can blame that, you can blame the global pandemic, um, you can blame me for nearly getting trapped in Singapore airport and Oz for still being in the USA, which has made recording a little bit tricky recently. Now, we haven't been doing nothing in the last few weeks. A little while ago, we spoke to the British Podcast Awards and the Welcome Trust, and they said they really liked us. Liked us so much that they made us fill out a form, compete against some frankly fantastic podcasts in order to get some money. For the next few episodes, we're going to be taking a look at sometimes misunderstood or overlooked health conditions, chatting to experts such as doctors and researchers, as well as people with lived experiences of these conditions who are experts in their own right. In true Why Aren't You a Doctor Yet style, we'll be exploring these conditions through a black and brown lens, looking at the role that race, culture and intersectionality have in how these conditions are perceived, diagnosed and treated. First up, we're looking at a chronic pain condition all too familiar to one of Suhail's friends. I'm Suhail Patel, your resident homie and original OG. With me here today, I have Anita Jones. How are you doing, Anita? Doing very well, thanks. I think I'm an OG as well. Uh, yeah, definitely. You're OG and an element of P. All the, all the letters. So. <laughs> I had to say that in my head. I was like, is that an acronym for something? <laughs> the first time I met you, I remember, because uh, someone introduced us in the office. You asked me how to spell my name. I don't know why. And I went S-U-H-A-I-L 
LMNOP and then you looked at me <laughs> just like <laughs> I just met you. <laughs> like, I think I asked you why how you uh, spell your name because of the pronunciation of how your name yeah. has been said. So oh, I was like, yeah. let me not say it wrong. Let's you get it right. You try to be a good start. person. I just I was a dick basically. So in case you haven't guessed it, Anita Jones is a uh, journalist and a sports journalist. Is that fair? Fair of saying that a presenter. Yeah, all how, of it. How would you describe yourself to people? All the above. All the above. <laughs> everything and everything in between. We've worked together at the BBC for some time. and But, you know, Anita's got a interesting backstory. She's had some issues in the past and some things that she's been dealing with. Could you tell me about your condition um, and what it's called and what it is? I suffer from something called endometriosis. It isn't the easiest of words to say. Which Trust me, it took me ages to learn how to did. spell it. Now well, you spell I can it, just... You kept, you kept tripping up on it, like many people do. <laughs> um, and it'd just be a bit weird if I didn't know how to say it properly and I have it. I'd be like, yeah. I have... Uh, uh, yeah, so... Um, endo, I like endo. So yes. endo, right? We can say endo from yeah. now on, yeah. Um, to try and explain it in its simplest form, it is a menstrual-related condition. So menstrual being... The posh word or the politically correct word for period so it's a period illness in the lining of the uterus they've got cells there which uh, shed every month and come out as a period endometriosis arises when those uh, cells in the lining of the uterus somehow move from the uterus to other parts of or other sexual organs those cells that leave the lining of the uterus react to the same hormones that we have every month when we have a period so in the case of the cells that remain in the lining of the uterus they come out as blood when they react to the hormones but the ones that leave that area have nowhere to escape and that's where the issue arises so these cells then stay there they grow and then the danger arises when they stick to things so the medical term is adhesions it can stick across your whole kind of sexual organ area and just make a complete and utter mess um, and it affects one in ten women in the UK From a healthcare perspective, that's an incredibly high percentage. Because of the difficulties getting a diagnosis, the numbers could be even higher than that. Endometriosis was first discovered by Austrian pathologist Karl von Rokitansky in 1860. At the time, this was some of the most impressive research using cutting-edge microscopy techniques. One of the most pivotal moments in the history of endometriosis, the discovery described, and I quote, some fibrous tumours of the uterus contain gland-like structures that resemble endometrial glands. However, unsurprisingly, for thousands of years previously across the world, it had been studied and understood, just not in the exact same way, more peripherally. Everything from stomach hysteria and a disease of frayed nerves, quote-unquote, in the relative recent ages, to texts from ancient Egypt and the Greek Hippocratic corpus, gynecological conditions may be referring to endometrial have existed for ages. But how do we understand it now? So endometriosis is a condition where you get growth of kind of womb tissue in other places. So maybe on the ovaries or the fallopian tubes. And typically the kind of symptoms people get are quite painful periods um, and uh, pain, pain during their cycle. It generally affects people during their reproductive years and then when um, 
people become uh, menopausal, um, the symptoms tend to tend to get better. Um, quite severe endometriosis um, can also cause abnormal bowel symptoms, irregular bowels. They usually coincide with symptoms like that. And for some people can cause like urinary issues too, depending on where the tissue grows. You're currently hearing from Dr. Annabelle Shoamimo. She's a sexual and reproductive health doctor, as well as a writer and the founder of Decolonizing Contraception. I'm a community sexual and reproductive health doctor. So, um, and I'm based in Leicester, based in the East Midlands. Um, and what that means is that I usually work in sexual health clinic and also in outpatient gynae department, um, doing basic um kind of gynecology and um, sexual health really which covers a lot of reproductive health um, issues and then I also um, founded a collective of um, black and people of colour working in sexual health called decolonizing contraception Um, the idea was kind of born from a series of articles I was writing for Galem, which um, is is a platform that I write for aimed at um, women and non-binary folk of colour and we came up with this collective and we um, have discussions, we have events, um, we just talk amongst ourselves because we feel in this field, um, the history is different and it affects our communities differently. So generally it presents with things like uh, cyclical menstrual pain, um, as well as pain sometimes during intercourse. Um, some people can have irregular bowel habits, but it can be quite non-specific the symptoms. And um, that's why it can be a little bit difficult for some people to get diagnosed one of the things that as I said makes it difficult is that the symptoms can be quite broad so people can misdiagnose it as something else or like pelvic inflammatory diseases when people get an infection down below sometimes due due to sexually transmitted infections sometimes due to something else so um, young women people can misdiagnose it as that um, because some people get bowel symptoms and the uterus and the black bowel are quite um, close together people can sometimes say it's just irritable bowel um, syndrome and people with endometriosis often actually do have irritable bowel syndrome but they also have endometriosis as well and then something else um, that makes it tricky is that is how you diagnose it um, so to firmly say somebody definitely has endometriosis you need to do what we call a laparoscopy which is a camera test um, into the the tummy um, to have a look around and then you would see kind of these endometriosis lesions like spots on 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 the womb or elsewhere that kind of look like um, the womb lining tissue that's grown elsewhere now um as you all imagine, it is a surgical procedure. It's relatively safe surgical procedure in the scheme of things, and it's just camera test into the into the tummy. But young women, they may be reluctant. Doctors are quite reluctant to to do laparoscopies on younger patients in case there are complications. A lot of people don't necessarily have that test. They have the symptoms. We can give them the 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 treatment, which is mainly like hormonal management, but um, they don't definitively get that answer until they've maybe been suffering for a few years. The issue with endometriosis is that it's an invisible illness. So you can't see what's going on. um, And having a diagnosis really helps you explain to others and kind of validate your pain, which is so annoying that in this day and age, you have to feel like you need to validate it. I started my period when I was 12 years old, started having intense chronic pain from the age of 14 and was back and forth from the doctors between 14 and about 21 22 uh just complaining about the pain like during high school 
every month I'd virtually go home at least one day uh, during my period because I just couldn't handle the pain. And, you know, you're going to the doctors and they're telling you, you know, some women suffer from this worse than others. And it's just like, what do you do? There's, there's this taboo around talking around periods and that's kind of facilitating this uh, lack of diagnosis. I mean, speaking of diagnosis, there is a big problem with diagnosing this condition, isn't there? Yes. Uh, on average, it takes seven and a half years. Mm. Mine took longer, 14 years. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the issues is that you can't measure pain. But equally, I'm not sure about GP's attitudes to this mm. thing um, and being able to see a gynecologist because ultimately they're like gate holders, not, not to put all the blame on them but if you see your GP and they tell you it's mm. normal you're never going to be able to see a gynecologist unless yeah. you are lucky enough to have private health care and yeah. you can go and source on yourself um, that's the first point of contact mm. which um, fails a lot of people and it failed me because I was just being told this was normal until I got to 27 and I went and saw a doctor and said hey I've seen these symptoms that someone I know has yeah, yeah. she's now been diagnosed with this I have the exact same ones I'm very worried and like looked sternly in her eyes and I think she could tell I was worried mm. and just fast-tracked me to uh, see a gynecologist and when you went to the gynecologist they 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 took a look they you had the surgery you told you you were told you had this condition I'm guessing it must have been mixed feelings because it's vindication because clearly you, there was something wrong and you knew that whole time. But at the same time, now you have this, what could be a lifelong condition. What yeah. was going through your mind at that time? So, yeah, I think it's important to highlight from the point of seeing a gynecologist to my surgery, there were about eight months. So it's not a fast track. We know that NHS is under serious pressure mm. um, and there aren't many surgeons that specialise in this. This is another thing. Um, so they're doing many of these across different hospitals. Um, definitely felt like a vindication, vindication like you said. I know that when I woke up, still under the influence of morphine, and I was told by the anaesthetician that uh, they found quite a bit. They had to do quite a bit of work. I was like, oh, my God, I told them something wow. was wrong. Wow. Like, it, you, you see, you're being empathetic. I'm laughing because imagine someone being high on morphine saying, I told them something was wrong. Yeah, he must have been <laughs> tripping. Yes, he must have been scared as well. Like, oh, Lord, no. I shouldn't have said anything. <laughs> um, yeah. But, yeah, no, um, it, it just... I think it reaffirms why you should trust mm. yourself and your mm. intuition. Mm. Um, that's not to put a downer on what the health service do, because I think the NHS is incredible. But if you think something, go with it. And one of the things is that there's always been this idea of like hysterical young women when it comes to any reproductive symptoms. So if periods are heavy or they're painful, um, that people aren't, um, that, that women aren't necessarily having those actual symptoms or that they're, they're pretending or they're making them bigger than what they are. When I've spoken to people with uterus at various events, they've said that they keep going to and from their doctor and they just tell them that it's just a painful period and to take pain relief. And it's really hard for them to get the onward referral or, or get any counselling about what else it could be. And they've only arrived at endometriosis maybe through their own research online. And I definitely think that within the medical profession, we still have some work to do on doctor-patient relations and how younger patients are treated and often um, those from marginalised backgrounds. 
One of the most difficult things about endometriosis is the fact that as of yet, there's no cure. However, that doesn't mean there aren't treatments or ways to manage the symptoms and pain. Uh, as I got older, I started taking even more um, uh, more potent medicine. So you start off with paracetamol, it then feels like water going through your system, like you're just having a glass of water. So it got to a stage where like my late teens, early 20s, I started taking cocadamol. For people that aren't familiar with that, that's um, a drug from the opioid family, which we've heard recently is really dangerous. Um, you don't um, want to take really opioids. Really addictive as well, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Yeah. That, that's where the dangerous element comes mm. from it, because a lot of people actually get addicted and end up overdosing because yeah. they're taking so much of it. Obviously, mm. mine's over the counter. I, I'm lucky enough I haven't had to go to the doctors for it. But having that dependence on such a strong drug yeah. is annoying to say the least. And mm. that knowing that you can't live without it is also really annoying. But I guess you just have to try and adjust your mindset to say, you know what, I've now got this diagnosis. This is what it is. How do I manage the pain? One thing I'd like to say to anybody that is suffering from menstrual pain or has been diagnosed with endometriosis is that this is a chronic condition like diabetes or anything. And it's something that you have to manage the symptoms throughout your whole life and it may not go away. And people around you should also acknowledge that that is a genuine health condition that you have. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges that sometimes your symptoms aren't consistent. You know, other things can distract you from the pain, which sometimes means that other people might not perceive your pain as being genuine. And obviously there's no way of somebody else experiencing that symptom or seeing it, you know? So it, it does make it a challenge in terms of managing the wider world, whether that's work, whether that's people adapting to you, whether that's you having to take time off. Um, I think that's one of the things that can be a really big effect on somebody's mental health, not just the pain itself, but people not really believing you. So that can be a challenge. Then in terms of actually managing the pain, obviously we have analgies, you would have pain relief. And one of the biggest things with my job I find so challenging is that like all medicines, various painkillers don't work on everybody. Um, some work better than others. And I've had patients where, you know, most of the classes of painkillers that we would ordinarily use just don't do anything for them. So, you know, they can go to a specialist pain clinic, usually run by anaesthetists um, that can do other things. However, it can be such a hard journey because there sometimes just isn't something that can get on top of it. There's hormonal management. So in terms of managing endometriosis, I think a lot of people genuinely find that hormones um, and hormonal management, which is like taking the combined contraceptive pill or using something like the marina coil they're really reluctant to use it because they're worried about side effects such as to their mental health having mood swings or um, having other hormonal side effects such as um, breast tenderness or affecting their skin which are very valid genuine concerns but I always try to say to people um, you have to weigh up your your options and in terms of uh 
you know your 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 daily standard of life and um, happiness and what um, what things are most important to you like controlling the pain or whether this side effect would be worse and sometimes you know even helpful making a pro con list or trying something for a period of time um, because unfortunately with conditions like endometriosis the options are really really limited so I always say don't write off certain things too early if you try them and they're disastrous and they don't work for you then fair enough you don't have to continue with that option but it's definitely better to give you know sometimes hormonal management a try also try lifestyle changes it's often a balancing act um, between various different things to get on top of the condition hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I mean, what I'm interested in is you started you mentioned the decolonizing contraception project, which is something I've heard about quite a bit. I mean, tell me just a little bit more about that. Yeah, so essentially, it was born out of the um, the I I found in my work that often when I come across particularly black women patients, but all people of color really, um, that they often feel that their experience of reproductive health uh, are different, or that people are not listening to them. So I wrote this article for Gallum exploring the reproductive and sexual health um, history of of uh, of people of color, um, including some of the experimentation that's taken place on certain communities to get certain information um also how there's kind of dis- disproportionate health inequalities in that area and how we've not really got a way of addressing that and there's not good research in that area and from that we um started doing we started organizing as um a collective doing events doing discussions um doing things amongst ourselves for International Women's Day. There was recently an event at um, the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, which I was really lucky to be part of, where we were talking about disparities mainly in maternity care, um, because we know 
black women five times more likely to die in childbirth and um, Asian women two times more likely. But then we also had a, a discussion about reproductive health and, um, you know, other conditions like endometriosis, like fibroids, um, like gynecological cancers. And there are still disparities when you look at um, some of these other areas. So uh, we know that black and brown people are less likely to go for um, cancer screening, like cervical cancer screening, or um, have their HPV vaccine, which protects against one of the main factors in development of cervical cancer. These communities generally present later when they do have cancer. Um, So whether that's because they're not presenting um, themselves or whether medical professionals are saying that their symptoms are not that serious or they're fine is really difficult to determine because we don't really have great reproductive health research across the board anyway, let alone for certain certain communities. But there are significant um, gaps. Um, and when I speak to patients um, that, um, whether it's Black patients or in my community work, and I speak to people at events, it's one of the most common things that comes up. Nearly every Black or Brown person of colour that I speak to tells me that they have just had really poor interactions with medical professionals and whether they have a different perspective of what happened in that consultation or or not they always feel like they've they've been undermined in some way which i think shows that you know we probably have some work to do in communicating um our messaging and uh, how we interact with certain demographics America it's very common knowledge that uh, for example in childbirth more black women are likely to die um, and I believe that's linked to kind of pain being taken seriously and so on mm, and mm. Um, I, I don't know the ins and outs but I am aware of yeah. th- that being a very prominent issue that's spoken about regularly in the press out there yeah. um, I don't know if that has if that's the case here in the UK or not mm. at the moment with endometriosis there seems to be this seems to be a widespread issue for women across every race. Mm. So I, I can't say anything there. Yeah. Um, but when they start to investigate this further and kind of taking women's pain seriously, I hope they do also look at how attitudes are towards people of colour because we're in a time where there is a lot of hate in society um, and racism still exists. Like people get on the defense when we talk about this and I don't think that's the way to tackle it. I think we just have to have open conversations and we can't expect the health service to be void of the issues that are happening in society. Wider issues to say. Yeah. So like you see racism in football, you see racism at the workplace, you know, in different forms. Like these are just different parts of society. So Mm. I wouldn't be surprised if it was in the health service. To what degree and how it's manifested, I don't know. But it also needs to be taken into consideration. And I think that another thing is in touching on the taboo, isn't it? It's like in certain BME communities, we don't talk about these kind of issues as much as well. We aren't open about these issues. I I don't don't think that's a race thing, though. Do you reckon that's more cultural, (laughs) isn't it? I, mm. I I think no I think mm. it's just yeah cultural but around the world because yeah. like how have you ever bought your sister tampons has she ever asked you to buy tampons not not specifically but I wouldn't mind doing that yeah but you know? see it's those kind of things has she mm. ever asked your dad to go and buy her tampons mm, that's a very good point that's you know, very, very um, and that's not just a race thing. Yeah. Um, that's just across the it's board. A wider you context. know, like yeah. I yeah. remember the first time I asked my dad, um, 
he didn't mind. Mm. And like I remember he called me from there. He's like, Anita, I'm seeing all sorts of things. You've got to help me out. Because yeah. I didn't give him a box. <laughs> I should have given him a box to help it out. Because yeah, buying tampons or pads for the first time can be a little daunting. But that's um, a good dad, you know. He loves Yeah, he yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. No, but I mean, so I think it's just something around the world we see. So mm. it's making sure that during sex education at schools, boys are present during conversations about menstruation and so on. I think something else that is really important to mention is that obviously endometriosis is a condition that's related to the menstrual cycle and uh, menstruation is still extremely taboo. Um, It's something that people don't really like talking about. Like people often still go and buy, you know, um, period pads in like in a very rushed way or they wouldn't go and send uh, necessarily like their cis male partner to buy their their, their period pads or their tampons or whatever, which makes conditions that are related to menstrual cycle, like endometriosis or fibroids, more stigmatizing because it's not you don't exactly get the same level of sympathy or people don't really want to talk about it in your family. It's not something that you can people find easy to say to you know their their African or South Asian dad like oh I've got you know endometriosis and this is how it's affecting me. So I think that creates like an extra barrier an extra layer and there's really great organizations that are working to address some of those issues as well like womb room and obviously just general menstruation you've got like bloody good period and 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 organizations like that because it's such a huge issue the stigma aspect as well which means that people can't present like they would present for some other medical problem like something an eye condition or something like that no, I think that's a that's a really interesting point, and it's something you know we talked about earlier with Anita, which is the taboo around um, menstruation. And she asked me, you know, as my sister ever asked me to go buy her tampons, and I was like, she never has, and I'd be happy to do it. But the more I think about it, is it would be slightly awkward maybe at first but it's important that we have those conversations isn't it and open up about these things yeah I mean like absolutely and you know I've I've got an older brother and we're really really close and he may have like bought me like period pads maybe once but it's like not something that is has has been like a common occurrence um and I've I you know I ask him to get me stuff in the shop all the time so again it shows me somebody that's like really you know open yeah and I talk about sex and relationships and um, reproductive health all mm. the time there's probably still like an underlying internalized there is a bit of stigma there i mean touching on that really and this is kind of off the cuff but coming from a background like that and talking about these issues is there that conversation with your parents where they didn't acknowledge it did they are they happy with what you do like how is that interaction between you guys so i'm i'm really fortunate in the way that um so i am my parents are a nigerian so um i'm british nigerian and essentially they are i guess compared to you know you know stereotypical uh nigerian dad or uh the ideas people have in their minds my dad's incredibly open-minded um and i can have most discussions with my parents um and actually, I, I also think it's been like a learning curve for them because, you know, they'll say something and I'm quite um, outspoken. So I'll challenge them and say, 
you know, why do we not do, why do we not do this instead? Or why, why, why would you not say that instead? And actually, it's been really incredible because, um, so my dad's actually a GP. Um, and when I started doing, um, training to become a sexual reproductive health doctor, um, he actually, um, started doing more modules in that area because I spoke about how loads of young women patients often feel they can't speak to doctors that you might present and look like my dad and um, conditions go missed and um, they won't pres- won't tell them what they're here for. So he did a lot of self-education and has done a lot of reflection and he's told me this um, as I've gone through um, my own specialist training, which I think is really great. Um, however, in terms of like my wider family and things like that, not not all of them are as open-minded. I've been really quite lucky that, you know, people haven't been, I mean, cruel about it. But I know for a fact that um, I speak about lots of discussions that are quite taboo within um, West African, very Christian communities, like abortion care and things like that. And I know that a lot of my family just completely disagree with my my stance on a lot of issues but it doesn't stop but you know what about it play, fair play to you for being that i've spoken about it and to kind of lift into taboo around talking about these issues in certain communities in kind of terms of sexual reproductive health um as i said there's quite generally quite a, a mismatch between um the communities that we serve and the disproportionate need uh amongst um people of colour and then the workforce and I think that is because of some of the things I discussed about stigma, taboo um, and that that meaning people don't want to want to get involved so I definitely think organisations and you know doing advocacy work and joining support groups um, and creating your own communities like I have done with decolonizing contraception really helps um, because from that I found like-minded people and we've been able to collaborate and improve visibility so when people say oh there isn't a you know a South Asian sex educator I'm like oh no there is here's my friend who's doing this work over here please look at her her stuff something we always talk about in DC we organize as a people of color collective but we recognize that our experiences and our communities are distinct distinct whether that means that you're you know um nigeria your family nigerian whether that means your family are bangladeshi whether they're first or second generation i think what's persistently happened across healthcare is a lot of non-white communities have been lumped together our health experiences which has made it quite difficult to tackle specific problems that we face whether that mean like the increased endometrial cancer among south asian community like that's a specific problem for that community that needs to be targeted in a really kind of direct way um in terms of awareness about symptoms and lifestyle and that kind of thing and i think key to kind of improving um diversity both in the workforce and the people that treat people is that visibility aspect and people knowing what the problems are in their community and how they address that and why it's important that they get involved and i still think that kind of targeted aspect of health education and awareness raising is still really missing in the uk no that's you make some really really powerful points there and you say it with like a real passion i could tell you it's really interesting and really knowledgeable about this topic please follow us on um, instagram um we link to a lot of the articles that various members of our collective um have written and other work that we're doing we'll be starting a digital series um 
weekly with um, lectures on Zoom on various aspects of sexual reproductive health during this time of corona lockdown um, and also follow us on Twitter. I do have vivid images of the doctors that told me this is normal, some women have it worse, which Mm. I can't get out of my mind, which Mm. is quite, it it can piss me off at times, I won't lie. Um, But then I'm hoping that with like the work you guys are doing on your podcast and um, just with so many outlets now talking about this, that they're going to be forced to rethink their strategy on this and take pain more seriously uh, or period pain more seriously and have, I, I don't know, some kind of criteria to decide whether they, and yeah. again, <laughs> why didn't you put on silent? I'm What's wrong with you? I'm an idiot, but you know this already. Trust issues. Maybe I, if I encounter that, maybe I think yeah. just believing or listening to my intuition is the most important mm. thing. So you trust yourself more now and believe in yourself more. That's definitely. A positive outcome, you might yeah, say. Yeah, definitely. From about 15 or 16, my hot water bottle has been my best friend. If anyone came to my house, they'd see it like sticking out of my trousers. <laughs> like, mm. No shame there. Yeah. I mean, I had incidents where family members would come around and be like, what the hell's going on there? I think that's because my hot water bottle's fairy. But yeah. um <laughs> Uh, I was definitely, I could never have taken that to school. It'd only be at home because I'd be dreadfully embarrassed. I'm now 29. I was diagnosed when I was 28, just as I was turning 29. And mm. I think the diagnosis gave me the power. So yeah. then, like, you've seen me at work with my hot water bottle. Now Absolutely. I don't care yeah. because I know there's something there. It's not just like mm. a figment of my imagination. Why did you, I mean, and this might be a stupid question, but why did you care before? In the, why, why was it? Is, why was it an issue? Were you conscious of the fact that people might not understand, or is that was that a big thing? One hundred percent. Not only that, talking about periods is not something people like we do regularly in the office. Well, so I do it all the time. Yeah, you have it every month, don't you? God, we all see it. The stereotypes of it, stereotyping of it. There, no, but um, yeah, we, there aren't enough conversations about periods. And yes, absolutely. I'm hoping that mm. with me using my hot water bottle when I'm in pain, I will give other women or young girls the power to do it as well. It's not a statement that, oh, here I am, my hot water bottle, take it, leave it kind of, I'm just more open to having it. And I'm not gonna be quiet about those conversations Mm. because women tend to like Mm. go in the corner and speak quieter about their periods or coils or you name it. And now I'm just like, you know what, forget this. Like I'm talking about it, this is an issue. One in 10 women have it. The same numbers of those that suffer from diabetes in the UK. We should be talking about this more. It's endo month. You're an endometriosis UK ambassador now. How can we help? How can, you know, people like me who want to have an influence, how can we help make a change? That's a really powerful question um, that Thank I think you. we should all be asking when their issues happen. <laughs> no, how can I help? Seriously. You know, we talk about allies and things. It's almost mm. like, how can you be an ally with this cause? I th- maybe just be open to have conversations about periods with yeah. women, you know? If they, if they say, you know, it's that time of the month, have a conversation with them about it. Mm. Don't just say, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry, you're going through that and walk away, you yeah. know? Like, just be upfront and ask, how are you dealing with it? Yeah. Do you need extra help? Do just you- be open with people. Yeah, because mm. some women, I think, maybe are in a space where they're happy to say things like they are... Um, they are having the time of the month but yeah. to really delve into it I don't think they will and you don't have to have endometriosis to be feeling down from your period that happens mm. to most women mm. um, so I think just asking them how they're doing 
would be great. And also, don't make stereotype or use those stereotypes where it says, oh, she must be on a time of a month kind yeah. of thing, you know? Yeah. With endometriosis, this can happen all month. So you're telling me I'm like this all year? No. So, yeah. so how are you doing now? How are you? And what are your what are you doing and what are your plans for the future? Yeah. Um, so you mentioned I'm working with Endometri Endometriosis yeah. UK, the leading charity for the condition. Um, I, since having surgery, has still had pain, which was a bit devastating. Mm. Um, but I've now opted to have the coil inserted, uh, which I had in November. It hasn't been great, but I've been told that it takes six to nine months for your, bo to, for your body to adjust. Yeah. Um, and at this stage, that's the um, the option I can take right now. Yeah. Okay, wicked. So I'm wishing you the best of luck on that. And I know it's going to hopefully work out real well for you. Um, and I've also got you a little present. Oh, yeah. thanks. It's a uh, small diamond ring. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, oh, Lord. Not. Oh, Lord. Uh, no, it's not. It's um, it's a pain management journey. Wow. Thank so you so super, much. Super cheesy. Um, no, it's not, guys. It says endometriosis pain management journal. Wow. You know, it's just some notebook, some person. <laughs> no, there's like a pain tracker and everything. Wow. Yeah, so I thought you thank keep, you so much. Keep track of your pain, and hopefully that's going to help yeah. you on your journey and your pain management journey. And if there's anyone out there who's interested in finding out more about this journey, you can follow Anita Jones on Instagram and Twitter, uh, along yeah. with Endometriosis UK. Yep. Um, Anita Necker N N E K A Jones. That's the one. Don't. Don't forget, folks. Thanks for being in the show, Nita. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Sahel. We've come to the end of the episode, and we'd like to say a massive thank you to all the researchers that we've spoken to, and of course, Anita and Annabelle, for taking time out to chat to us, plus you lot for listening. Next week, Alex is finding out what it's like to be black and autistic. Spelling tests, and I, I genuinely got into arguments with teachers because they'd have to mark down your score. Someone else would have marked your test. I'd say I got a seven. Who marked it would shout out, oh no, she got a 10. I'm taking less, what's the problem? Like, what is your issue? Leave me to, I want a seven. I've got the right to take a 10, but I want a seven. So, <laughs> yeah, it would have been about nine at the time, but yeah. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.